The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop posing for the men in technology calendar and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 411 with guest Ward Bell, recorded live Monday, December 15th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man whose idea of a night on the town is a red carpet pass to the Consumer Electronics Show, Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you very much. And welcome back to .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. This is Carl Franklin. Richard Campbell will be here in just a minute. Just to uh, catch you up on what's going on around here, Richard and I just got back from the New York City Code Camp and before that, Code Mash. Um, both places we recorded shows. We also have a bunch of shows coming up with Mark Dunn from TechEd Europe, and that that uh, those should be coming up pretty soon. We also recorded a Mondays for those Mondays fans. And yes, everything that we said in the last one is true. I'm serious about this. So you can be looking forward to that next Monday. But right now, let's get to our interview with Ward Bell. Our uh, guest today is Ward Bell, the Vice President of Technology at IdeaBlade, where he's responsible for the product direction of the DevForce.NET application framework, a product targeting smart client development. That product extends the ADO.NET entity framework with N-tier client caching and Silverlight support. Ward misspent much of the last 30 years, in his own words, programming line-of-business applications for numerous companies, including several of the Fortune 100. He dispenses unsolicited advice on his blog, Never in Doubt, which you can find at www.neverindoubtnet.blogspot.com. Never in Doubt Net. Interesting. You know that expression... Um, uh, often wrong, but never in doubt. Yeah. Well, That's in the music business, we have another one called "When in Doubt, Chromatic Out." So <laughs> it's kind of kind of the same thing. I don't know. Maybe. How are you? 
I'm feeling great. I'm feeling very puckish today, like I'm going to say something I'll regret in the morning. That's awesome. We look forward to that. Yeah. Well, I'm, oh. I'm really thrilled to be able to join your stable of pontificators. I've, I've got plenty of that in me. So before we talk about um, the, the product, which is interesting in and of itself, we could probably do a whole show on that. Um, you've got some uh, solid opinions about um, ORMs in general and uh, link to SQL and entity framework and lots and lots of uh, those kinds of technologies and practices. Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, first of all, like many people, I really like ORMs. Not, not everybody does, but... Um, uh, I'm in that camp that feels that abstracting out the, pushing away all the plumbing and trying to deal with objects in your code like you, like you'd like to see them and with behavior and all that stuff and not having to think about how to pull them in and out of uh, the database unless and until you absolutely have to think about it. That that just uh, that feels right to me and it seems to feel right to to an awful lot of people I talk to. So there's no problem in my mind with ORM. The general complaint about ORMs, of course, is that you, when you hit a brick wall, you really hit a brick wall, isn't that? Well, I've heard that, but I'm trying to figure out who's actually had that experience. Okay. You might have been talking about that. There was that quagmire, you know, ORM, the quagmire, a Vietnam quagmire. Yeah, Ted Neward, uh, the Vietnam of yeah, software development. Yeah, yeah, I wrote about that, too. Um, and, you know, the problem with that one is that you have to go show me. Um, where somebody really crashed and burned because of ORM. Okay. There are lots of reasons applications crash and burn, but but that has never been high on any of the ones that list I've seen. And Ward, you're with IdeaBlade, right? Uh, so yeah. you guys have been in the ORM business for a while now. What's the product? DevForce. Yes, it's called DevForce, and we've had a, a version of the, this kind of thing since uh, .NET began. You know, we had our first version in 2002, I think. Um, and we've been nursing it along. As a matter of fact, we uh, we had our own. We did our own mapping and our own persistence. Still have that right up until we saw Link and uh, Entity Framework coming. And then we said, well, you know, um, we could try and and go uh, knuckle city with uh, Microsoft, or we could just uh, join the uh, join the party. And so we made a strategic decision in our, with our most recent product to say. Um, we'll start with Entity Framework, and then there's plenty of value we can add to that. Okay, so what about it, Entity Framework? What's your What's been your experience with it? Well, um, uh, you know, it's still version one, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it works, uh, and uh, it it's going to get better. And most importantly, uh, the community of people that we're reaching out to, the people we want to sell to. Uh, most of the people in .NET are really—they really want Microsoft to take this problem on, uh, and so uh, you got to go with it. And or at least that's our opinion. And uh, it actually—you know—I've got my beefs, but you know, any technology you take on, especially a version one technology, you have your beefs about. But mm-hmm. it—it works. It's good. Um, so uh, you know, we're happy with it, and we're happy that they're uh, improving it. What are some of those beefs? As if we didn't know, but go ahead. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm I, have, you know, here, got their list. I have, <laughs> I have three big ones. Uh, one of them um, I, I share with Franz. He keeps talking about it. It's the it's the designer, yeah. um, the drag and drop designer, uh, and uh, 
I don't know why they feel that's such a great thing to do. I know that people, I guess it's because people really love the idea of dragging and dropping to, to build things. Okay. Uh, but if you've ever seen a canvas full of like 20, 30, 40, 50 objects on it, um, uh, it's just a big mess. Okay. So it, it's, not the, it's not the most efficient way to um, uh, develop a model. Have you guys played with that kind of thing before? Oh, sure. I've been playing with that kind of stuff since I could, since they were available. But I would argue that that's always been the case. It's got nothing to do with Entity Framework, but the whole drag-and-drop thing does not write good code. Uh, it, 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 and it's, it really doesn't help you when things get to be a certain size. Right. Uh, you know, if you're trying to look at an, a, a data model, all you end up with is some giant eye chart that uh, managers love, but that you can't actually, it doesn't really actually help you be productive. Yeah, it gets very unusable very fast. Um, now, I think that they're starting to look at that and come up with better ways to work with um, these these densely connected boxes, but uh, but that's in the future. I think, Ward, the answer is to have three 30-inch monitors. Yeah. And uh, just go ahead and oh, let it fly. Spread uh, it out. One of the things we did, though, and here's the thing. So that's a bad thing, right? So what can you do? I mean, for every bad thing, you ought to say, what can you do about it? Sure. And, um, you know, hey, it's XML. You can write your own, ha-ha, you can write your own um, <laughs> object mapper. All right. But there'll be other people who write their own object mappers that work with it. Design, design not, you know, not the mapping part, but the, the designing tool. And, you know, we did that, too. So you can use the, the Entity Frameworks designer when you want, and you can, talk, you know, you can switch over to an integrated uh, visual, uh, somewhat visual designer. At least you're not writing the XML anymore. Um, and get a different perspective on your model. So, so this is a curable problem. Um, a second thing that drives me bats is their position on foreign keys. They hide the, uh, they hide the uh, foreign key ID. Um, uh, and uh, they do this because uh, they're be- taking a principled approach to what it is that you, how it is that you ought to think about your model. Uh, and you shouldn't be aware that um, a navigation from order to order details is facilitated by, I, you know, foreign keys, or from the order up to the customers. You know, you shouldn't know that there's an ID in the order, a customer ID that's in the order. But this causes no end of headaches for the developer. Sure does, yeah. I think they're going to have to let that one go. I you think know, there are forces bearing down upon them that will let, make them let that it's go. It's relational by nature. You might as well express the rationality there, the relationship. Well, and has it ever been a good idea to hide anything? I mean, put stuff away so we don't have to look at it all the time, but we always got to be able to see it eventually. That's exactly right. And you know what? Everything that they object to about the foreign key, you could object to to the primary key. Sure. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be showing that to the end user. Um, but they never get away with that. They never get away with that. Right. So this is only degrees of pregnancy. Exactly. Oh. You took a bad idea and you picked the one you could get away with. Exactly. Well, is there any way to unhide it categorically? Well, you can. Exp- fortunately, you can expose it very, relatively easily, and we have taken that path in our product. Um, but the uh, the thing that's got me beat at the moment is that I can't write a link query that makes a reference to it. Right. So, for take my example. If I want to um, do a query that you know, I know that it's customer ID twenty seven, and I want to go get the orders, and I just want to say that the customer ID of the order equals twenty seven. Now nah, I can't do that. 
I gotta go or uh, or you know in the link expression I gotta go order dot customer dot id equals twenty seven and that's going to do the join on customer. Now that's the you know that's the in principle right way. Although right there I've exposed the id, so who am I kidding? Um, but if, there are lots of situations where you're you're doing a lot of stat, little status codes, a little of this, a little of that, just simple references out, and you're going to end up generating a whole bunch of joins in that. that that query that you wouldn't have done if you coded it by hand. Uh, so one of the things I really like about uh, what you've laid out in your blog here about the EF is the Entity Framework for Real is specific, you know, like a checklist of when the Entity Framework could be right for you as opposed to just use it or don't use it. You actually have some, you know, like a little a little list that says, you know, like you might be a redneck if... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good. And, and, and some of those points were really about, you know, when should you use an ORM at all? Um, and and that's, that's your starting place. So, so I like to think that if you're, if you're building a, a really significant line of business app, which has got a lot of user interaction and the data are going to be complex and interrelated and you're going to live with those data for a while within while the user is interacting, you're actually going to do something with the data and the business rules that are involved. Yeah. Um, you actually have some behavior there to, to, to worry about. Then you've really got to take an ORM approach, in my view. Are we really talking about managing multiple versions of the product? It, it isn't even that. It's just that, you're, that, that as you're building your UI, you want to work with a rich object model. Right. And uh, because, you know, when I bring out the customers and the orders... They're gonna they're gonna live within the space the the lot they're gonna live within my session for a while. All right, I'm gonna have uh, interactions between the UI and those uh, those objects, and and there's going to uh, it's not that there's going to be so much um, data in my hands at that time, but that I'm going to have a lot of rules and reasoning over them. Um, and let me contrast that to some place where ORM makes no sense at all. Uh, which is, uh, if you were, say, going to process um, uh, a whole bunch of financial, uh, you, know, you were going to process a whole bunch of payroll data or something like that, and you were just going to iterate. No, no, it wouldn't even be that, because even that's a great case. Uh, you were going to um, uh, read in a file, uh, filter it down, pick out the ones you like, add 23 to them, and, and spit something. Yeah, one-time utility one. program. Yeah, exactly. There's no reasoning going on there, and you got millions of these records that you got to process, and there's some time constraints on you to get it done. If all of those and performance is everything versus flexibility, versus flexibility, maintainability, the time it takes you to program it, you know, it uh, performance dominates all other considerations. Don't use ORM. But if performance doesn't dominate all other considerations. Uh, you got to ask yourself, you know, why am I worrying about shaving off a few microseconds here and there? It, it, you know, if I can avoid doing a whole lot of programming, if I've got a productivity issue, um, then and a maintainability issue and a simplicity issue, uh, if those are the considerations that really matter, then ORM seems like the right place to start for me. Right. Where so the weight being, if prefer, yeah, you're prepared to spend twice as long programming to wring every millisecond out of the app. Then you shouldn't be considering an ORM, right? Just, yeah, yeah. Toss that aside. But that isn't that isn't what you do in a line of business app, is it? No, no. not at all. No, nope. I haven't for a long time. Maintainability has been the dominant issue for quite a while. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
So, so once you've said, okay, well, ORM's right for me, um, now there are, there's a question about whether EF is right for you, uh, in particular, of all your choices. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll get into whether it's, it's ever right for anybody, because that's going to take us into, you know, obviously I think it is, uh, but that'll take us into the no-confidence vote. But, but there are some, um, there are some gotchas. I mentioned the foreign key problem. And um, and there are a couple of other little gotchas around the edges, and um, so you kind of, in order to make certain things happen right, you have to have some degree of control over the database schema. So if you can't touch the database at all, you can't make any changes at all, you may find that there's something you need to do that EF won't let you do. Yeah. Then it's hard it, to give you an exact example well, of some of those. Well, if you've got security, you know, if you're if everything goes through store procedures through a DBA and, you know, that you've got a Nazi to deal with, you know, you're going to have a problem. Well, if you've got a total commitment to stored procedures for all of your CRUD operations, you're not going to get anywhere with any ORM anyway. Yeah, um, again, I still feel like we're dealing with essentially why I'd use an ORM versus not using one. I, I still don't have a feeling for what Entity Framework does that's distinctive that would make me choose it over other products. Ah, well, um, one of the, you know, I still think the killer reason to use Entity Framework, uh, you know, is um, you're um, signed up to be with the, the one ORM that we know will be the most dominant ORM in the market. So because yeah. it's Microsoft, yeah. it's because it's they're the putting all choice. those resources behind it, and because when they put all those resources behind it, other people put resources behind it. Right. Well, let me give you an example. Have you ever gone out there and tried to find a book on N Hibernate? Not recently, but let's give it a shot right now. Well, you could certainly find a lot of web content. You will find that there is one that never reached print that I know about. You have to get it in an ebook form. You know, another another great reason to use the Entity Framework is because Microsoft is using this in all of their products that do data access. So by plugging into their, you know, by plugging into the Entity Framework, you suddenly get a broader palette of, uh, of technologies that you can use. Absolutely. When I, when, you know, we were both at PDC, and what did you see over and over again? All of the new technologies that they were interested in that would be interesting to us make use of Entity Framework out of the box. You know, that, that's going to be, uh, you're going to see that in the Silverlight. You see that as the preferred leaping off place for Astoria. You saw that in, in the M language. Um, it was just everywhere you went. Uh, it's the technology. It's going to be in reporting services, so, so now you'll be able to write reports against an entity model at some point. You know, I mean, um, so it just opens the door to a whole series of related uh, Microsoft technologies and third mark, you know, third-party technologies. Uh, people have to make choices, and and um, everybody is going to orient their products towards what you can do with Entity Framework. And we should also, you know, we've done this before on the show, but we should also draw a distinction between the Entity Framework and the model. And the model is what is being adopted. The the uh, Entity Data Model. Yeah, that's true. We should make that distinction because uh, the entity framework relies on the uh, EDM, the entity data model, um, uh, to provide specific services typically to to uh, those of us who are living in the CLR. And if you were writing reports, you could write reports against um, uh, the EDM without ever uh, turning anything into a CLR object. Right. 
And you could write your own tools that use the model. Well, absolutely. Um, And that's another great point because there's all kinds of information that's packed into there and that you can add to it. For example, in our product, we add our own attributes to the EDM model. We don't have our own mapping file. We uh, we uh, enhance the um, the XML that's in the EDMX. The EDMX being the file that represents uh, the entity data model. Uh, so it's extensible in that sense, and and that gives other people a lot of opportunity to build valuable tools that make reference to this common mapping file. So so those you know for all of those reasons, which I considered both business and technical reasons, uh, you, you know, you're going to, if you're not going to go with the entity framework, you would better have a really great reason to go someplace else. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik. Our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD controls for WPF and RAD controls for Silverlight. That's right. If you started building next-generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, They have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now, that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, and it's interesting to think, you know, we had a conversation with uh, Danny Simmons and Steve Forte about exactly this, where they said there's different pieces here and there is an opportunity for third-party products to integrate with EF. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what exactly what we did. We found plenty of places where there's stuff we could do. Um, so, for example, uh, we're now getting in our product a little bit, but but um, uh, the first thing you notice about any framework is that it doesn't have an end tier story. And, and they're working really hard on that for V2, but uh, and maybe they'll make it and maybe they won't. Um, but uh, we have it now, uh, and right out of the box. Um, and uh, so that that's a value add point, and and. We do things like client-side uh, caching of the data so that you get better performance, and we can deal with the testability issues that any entity framework can't handle right now. Um, but we have a great testability story, and and, um, and and so forth. And you know, we can look at more of those as we go. But there's lots of ways that you can you can take off from uh, what they've laid down there in entity framework. So you just laid out a couple of real deficiencies there. What? What do you have? You heard anything about their story about how they're going to address those things, or when we're going to see some of those features addressed? Well, they're <laughs> they got caught by the Poco bug, as far as I can tell. They feel caught that by the that, what? The Poco bug. Plain old CLR objects. What I consider a relatively small part of the community has um, been really tearing into uh, Entity Framework because uh, it's not Poco. Which means, you know, not persistence ignorant. It doesn't mean that you can't write plain old CLR objects. Right. right. Uh, you have to inherit from the, from a class. Interestingly, you don't have to inherit from their class, um, uh, or at least we found a way to get around that. 
Um, but you do have to inherit from um, some class in there. And, and that that uh, just uh, just thinking off the top of my head that could cause a product a problem for example if you're using enterprise services because you in enterprise services you have to inherit from a serviced component is that right since yeah. you don't have multiple inheritance that could be a problem but those yeah. are generally com- now that I think about it those are generally components that do something rather than the data data model yeah components. they're not the objects themselves yeah. Um, you're talking about some service that would would move the objects around. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Around. So, so that's, that's right. not going to be a, a, that's not gonna be a, a problem. point of contention. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, um, the fact that you inherit from something is, in my experience and in the experience of people who use our product and use Franz's product and use a, Rocky's CSLA and so forth, uh, you know, they are not coming back and crying because they are inheriting from something. It's got. There's got to be a situation where where that can cause a real problem. There, there must be. It's got to be. <laughs> but you, you know, um, I'm, I'm. Wait, I keep hearing, you know, and I read how it's. Uh, you've just burned the base class. Mm. Um, but I keep looking for consequences, and uh, every time you ask one of the people who says, "Don't burn the base class," about it, they start talking to you about testability. Well, I think you can solve the testability uh, issue without um, uh, forbidding base classes. You can't do it if it's the wrong base class. You can't do it if you're inheriting from something that doesn't lend itself uh, to a testable approach. But it, but um, that's a failure of the implementation of the base class, not a not something that's intrinsically wrong um, with uh, with with inheriting from something. Hmm. Okay, I, I buy that. Would attributes be a better way to implement something like that, though? Um, just be decorating a class with attributes to give it functionality rather than requiring that it uh, that it has a base class. I mean, it, of course, it doesn't give you base methods, but well, that's that's the thing. What do you what, what do you give up? For example, right. I mean, the thing that you keep hearing from those of us who do have a base class in our products is we we talk about three major problems. I think. Um, one of them is is uh, how do you handle dirty checking and, and remembering that right. the object has changed state. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, because the, the the PI the the persistence ignorance approach says, um, well, you make something else watch the object, uh, and that just has loads of trouble if you've mm-hmm. been following it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's even even think about it as an instinct. All right, think of it as an object during a program. You're looking there at customer, and you've changed it. Um, who do you look to for to have the original value? Right. Now there's an external reference and dependency, and that has to be maintained throughout. So, so yeah, it does seem like having that goo in the base class is the best place to put it. It does make sense. I and, just, and navigation is another one. You know, you, yeah. you've got that order dot order details property that's going to give you the order line items, and you want it to lazy load. Yeah. What are you going to do? Well, the answer that everybody else gives you is that you've got to you give um, that, that some, that some of these folks. Well, you know, in Hibernate, for example, is that you you have to you you have to use a factory method to so you can cover up the instantiation of the object so you can put a proxy in front of it. All right now, I'm not talking about uh, aspect-oriented programming here, which I want to just briefly give a nod to. But the standard way to do this is that. Um, you're, you're going to actually end up with a proxy, which means the, the way that most of these proxies only work, 
is you have to make all of your properties um, be virtual. And that violates the open-closed principle, you know, which says, uh, in, in pr- what it effectively means is, is that I'm, um, I'm putting my class in a position where somebody can inherit it and break, break inherit from it and break it. And I, as the provider of that model, the provider of that object, have no control over that because I can't control what they do to my virtual um, property. So I've never been a big fan of the the, the movement to um, make everything virtual, but that's what AOP uh, requires, and that's what uh, in Hibernate requires. Uh, so it's just unnecessary complexity at this point. It, it well, it makes your code more vulnerable. I right. mean, you guys know what, I mean, this is just true about virtuals anyway. You guys know what it's like to override, you, you sit down and you look at a property or method and it's time to override it. And you have to ask yourself, am I going to call the base? Am I going to, if I do call the base method, do I call it first or second? I mean, you know. Well, you got to know what's there, right? I mean, that's fundamental. You have to know whether you need to or not. Exactly. You have to know what it um, does. Yeah. And and even then, and so there you are, down in there, knowing what the implementation is. Right. Now, imagine that you're the person, all right, responsible for a product, that, that and you have to make some guarantees about how the product behaves, what it's going to do under certain circumstances. Every time you open the door for somebody to modify something, either through overriding it or something else like that, you've created a support burden for yourself. because They're going to come to you and say, your product doesn't work, and you're going to find it's because they violated some something that you counted on because they overrode something that you didn't know they were going to override or override in that way. And that kind of thing is really hard to track down. Well, and it's also one of those things that they're going to get a long way down the path before they realize they have a problem. Exactly. It's going to show up someplace else, and everybody's going to have a long session tracking that problem down. Yeah. And, that, and that, who they that's point the one the that makes, that, that's where you get those sort of axiomatic, never use this statements, because it burns somebody that's put a lot of work in. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do away with virtual. <laughs> I'm saying you should be able to pick your places and say, this is an extensibility point. That one over there, that's not an extensibility point. Have you worked, uh, have you worked much with Rocky Laka's CSLA.net? And what do you think of his uh, approach? Well, you know, uh, Rocky is actually on our technical advisory board. And I talk to Rocky you know, whenever I can, usually at some conference or something. So... And I've, I've, I've looked at his stuff. Um, we have very similar philosophies about, um, uh, some of this and what we, you know, what, what the, what the developer should be able to expect that the object is doing for him before he starts. Uh, so there, there's a lot of alignment with that. We, we both feel that, uh, pretty strongly that, uh, that the, the client application developer should have the objects there and just, and they should be the same objects that are executing on a server if you're in a multi-tier environment. It's the mobile objects idea. The one model idea. It's one model. I only want to write one. I don't want to have to write two models, maintain two models, maintain two sets of validation logic. Um, I worry about whether they're being kept in sync. Uh, I, I mean, I have to do that only if I'm in a true SOA scenario. And people get this that's <laughs> okay. What a great buzzword, right? Yeah, boy, yeah. you just stepped in it, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, why? You have to go back to why would we be interested in SOA in the first place? What is its promise? 
and it promises an integration story, you know, that I can take something I had no control over and integrate with it, right? I mean, isn't that right. why we do it? Sure. Well, I'm writing in a line of business application. It's one application. I know both sides here. I'm not, tr- I'm not trying to expose my entire CRUD interface, because I mean, most of this stuff is CRUD. There's plenty of other things you want to do, but let's face it. When we're talking about how we move data back and forth um, to the database, it's a lot of CRUD operations. In there. Well, you can architect, how should I say this, without going complete SOA and separating databases and physical machines and blah, 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 you can architect so that your uh, so that your services sort of do operate independently of each other. And then if you, you know, there, there's a very wise man once said, don't try to solve a problem you don't have. So if you, if you do find yourself in the future going to SOA, you can architect it in such a way that it'd be pain, relatively painless to make the separation. I, I think that's general, that's generally true. And that, and that's, and it's wise to, how to put it, you know, the, just because you have an interface doesn't mean it's SOA, but it's really good practice. Yeah. Um, to 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 hide behind to insulate <laughs> hide behind to insulate yourself from um, certain kinds of things that could happen to you later. Sure. But you're still you're still looking at it and say you know so what's the value of uh, of um, uh, knowing that I'm going to be in? Do I really have to deal with the possibility that um, uh, I'm not going to be programming in .NET? Well, for a line of business application, not really. You know, so I'm willing to say, you know, the objects I'm going to get back from my service are going to be well, dead on. I think the integration thing is the key, though. If you have uh, business partners, if your company merges, for example, and now you've all of a sudden got something that you need to integrate with and there's no option about it, you, you, uh, you know, SOA is really going to help you there. But there is a point of, do you really plan in that need? How many... Business acquisitions are there going to be? Well, like he said, you don't you don't have to go full out SOA before it's required or before it's necessary. But another layer of abstraction is always a good thing. If you got the right tools to be able to deal with it, that's it's not a bad idea. Well, let, let me throw this one at you, Carl, because I, I I hear you about that, but we're talking about pretty granular, low level a, a, API here. You know how I uh, insert, update, delete customers or graphs or something like that. And now imagine that somebody else, I, I merge with another co- um, company and they bring in their Java app. Um, is my real problem that I can't talk Java, I can't send a Java customer object? Or is my real problem that they have one idea of what a customer is and I have a different idea of what customer Yeah, that's the far bigger issue, yep. that what's in your customer, what's in my customer. Right. Exactly. And you're not going to solve that because you've got an, uh, an enterprise services bus. Sure. Right? Yeah, and this is this I think is the key point from that great great book by Evans, you know, uh, domain driven design. Right. Uh, it, he's all about that that the domain model is first and foremost a uh, a conceptual unity in the minds of the people who are programming it. Mm. Right. Mm. And, and you you know just the fact that you can physically smash two uh, disparate systems together because the technology enables you to doesn't mean that you're not going to get into big trouble when customer in one uh, domain meets customer in another. There are levels of difficulty of integration, though. I mean, you know, the, it, can be, uh, it can be a complete nightmare, or it, can be, or it can come down to simply doing the conversion between the types. 
if that's and it, here's the thing: if that's really required, you can always add a service layer later mm-hmm. to right. bridge the two domains, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you can put the firewall. I forget. And what that's the, what happens what most of the time, I think. Yeah. What does Evans call it? It's some translation layer or an insulation layer or whatever it is. Um, but you're now you're doing the right thing. You're putting a service layer between two similar uh, systems that need to talk to each other, but that really have very different domains. Right, exactly. And you're doing a conceptual translation, not just a technical translation. Yes. Yeah, and that's a a far more anticipatable, manageable, and not putting tons of plumbing in for something that may or may not be used kind of point of view on it. I agree. I agree. I mean, and we are talking degrees of of implementation here. Yeah. So, so, so anyway, I, I don't say that you don't build app, uh, many people, if I was building a credit scoring application and I was, and I was designing it so that, that the world out there could, um, uh, you know, read my credit scores, you could be sure I'm going to expose that as a web service, but that's mm. not a line of business. App. And speaking of web services, Astoria, WCF services in Astoria, got some opinions about that. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> well, look, I, 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 first of all, I'm not going to be trashing anybody or anything, really. I, I want to, I want, I want to show a lot of respect for all of these efforts. Uh, I, you know, I think that it's right, uh, a story is probably right for a situation in which you don't know who is going to be consuming your model, and yet you want to open it up to them without, to everybody without, um, without thinking or caring too much about whether there's going to be conceptual confusion at the domain barrier. Now, I don't know who that is that, has, that wants to do it that way, but Astoria will help you do it. The, the downside is that you really, it's a really a two-model approach. You've got one model on your server, and you've got another model on your client. You're maintaining two models. There's nothing that says that they, that they are sharing the same concepts involved. Again, what is a customer? What are the rules? And so forth. Um, and then there's also a lot of things that you would want to do, uh, you might want to do in an Astoria client, a client that's using Astoria, that you can't really bring off. May I suggest one for you? Sure. Um, you want to issue a query for uh, uh, orders that use um, a, the vanilla product, the chocolate product, okay? Now, um, the fact that that that, um, that those orders are using chocolate product—that's not a property of the order. That's a property of a product that's sitting on an order detail of that order, right? Right. But it's a perfectly reasonable something I might easily want to do, right? Sure. You can't express that. You can't express that in an Astoria query. You can only filter for properties of the object that you're going to retrieve, which in our case was order. So there are lots of really important kinds of queries that you can't construct. Um, they also haven't dealt with a, the sort of bread and butter um, issues of um, uh, how you um, deal with concurrency very well and, and ID generation and all the kinds of things that you really need to be able to do to construct and save objects on the client. How do you properly move uh, error information across and, and, uh, and so forth. So uh, I think that it's I think it's a great start, um, but I'm I'm not a big fan of two model solutions, and 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 I want to be able to have the full capabilities of Link on my client. 
Well, and and it's again, the story is the first version, so there, there's some forgiveness there. Uh, it's and they did not build that thing with Link in mind. No, they didn't. They did what a lot of people do afterwards. They say, "Oh, everybody wants to use Link. We'll we'll write our own variant of Link." You know how I mean, you know how easy it is to write a variant of Link. I mean, I can write one in an afternoon. Right. I, I was thinking exactly that. You've got Dev Force. You could have done your own Link for Dev Force. Oh, we, well, actually, we we did. Right. Um, but but I, when I uh, what I'm doing is, is <laughs> what I mean to say when I could have written a link in the in an afternoon, well, all I have to do is throw an exception in every one of the in all the implementation, and I'm done. All right, and I say that as a joke, but the fact of the matter is that that that's what happens to you when you're in a story. You think you're composing a query that seems like a perfectly reasonable link query, but basically they look at it and say, "Sorry, you can't have that one." Interesting. And throw an exception. And that's what a lot of people do. And Franz uh, Boom has made this point, too, when he's talked about, you know, he, he really worked very hard for his product to make sure that, that um, he made use of the full capabilities of Link and that it actually did something useful, um, that it didn't throw an exception, even when you tried to do um, very challenging things. Right. Silverlight, also a challenge where Link is concerned. Well, we got that one covered, too. Yeah. <laughs> That was one of, that's one of the things, again, our, our product was specifically designed to be end-tier and to work for places like, like Silverlight. So um, we have, you know, you can, there's a set of, there's a, a suite of link queries that the Entity Framework people uh, offer, um, so you can sort of see what they look like, a test suite of about 100 queries. Right. Um, you can run all of those in our Silverlight version. Cool. So you definitely went after that particular problem. We, we, it, and it took us a long time, but, but making sure you could do full link on the client was really critical. So, we, you know, we can do projections into anonymous types. Can't do that in a story or anything else. But if you've got some kind of aggregate query that you want to do, you know, and you want to, you want to come up with that on the client, you want to be able to produce asynchronous types. You want to be able to do polymorphic queries. You, you know, um, uh, by this I mean, because I think, some people in the audience might not know what that is. Um, let's suppose that you had a base object called produce, and it had uh, fruits and vegetables, and within fruits there were apples and pears, and you know all that kind of stuff. And you had represented that inheritance tree in um, uh, in your database, uh, in your mapping, in your uh, ORM mapping. That means that I should be able to um, issue a query for produce and get all of the different kinds of, of produce out there in their final derived class form. So I will literally get, uh, with a single query for all the produce, I will get apples and oranges and potatoes and all of that kind of stuff, and each of them will be in their own class. Right. Now, yeah, that, polymorphic. That query. was a contrived example that I just gave you, but there are many good examples. Where oh, sure. I've, I've dealt with exactly this kind of model in credit card processing, where you have a credit transaction class that then has the subordinate classes for the given transaction processing type. And you need to be able to pull those up, not only just that first and second order stuff, but third order stuff as well. I need transaction processing that is specific North America. I need it to, to for these currencies, but any of the, the the transactional devices. Like it goes on and on and on. There are complex hierarchical models there, and querying them, generally speaking, sucks. 
if you if your model is designed so that they inherit from a base class that's represented as an entity, no problem. Yeah, and it's just interesting to think about that from a data perspective. It just gets a lot less painful. You know, this is actually a really good ORM case. We spent an awful lot of time on this impedance mismatch between how we mapped all that crap into the database and how the object represents it. You got it. You got it. And, and, and so let me move on to the, 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 let me show you what this means, though. I want to be able, you know, when I ha- came up with the idea that I needed to do that, like to get your, transa- your, your processing transactions, Right. Where, where might the inspiration from that come from? I mean, in terms of, you, you were sitting there trying to build a UI, right? And you suddenly realized while you were thinking about the client application that you needed that query. Right. All right. So when we, where would you like to write that query? Well, I, I'm right there while I'm on the client. Exactly. Do you want to say, oops, I can't do that. Uh, I think I better go over to the server and change my server code so I add a service method that does that? Right. Yeah, you want to avoid that. Exactly. You don't want your UI, your UI is a client of your data services, and you don't want to be perpetually going back and rewriting the server model every time you need something on the client model. And this sort of inches back into this whole SOA mindset that I should have been able to build an infrastructure on the back end once that I can get what I need from. Exactly. You know, we've been talking about Link a little bit here. Uh, where do you stand on the whole Link to SQL thing? Well, uh, you know, I, I, my hat's off to the guys that build it, um, but it, it's got to go. Um, well, and haven't they sort of implied that in their own blog postings? Absolutely. They, they've, they've taken the team and they've merged it in, and, it, and it's got to go. And, the, and, it, and it has to go because, I mean, you can't have, uh, if you're Microsoft or anybody, you can't say, well, we have two ways to do this. One of them is easy. But you know, doesn't hit all the cases, and one of them's really hard for you. Yeah, <laughs> but it'll do what you want in the end. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you just you just can't confuse people like that. You can't say one, uh, one of our products is the product of the future, and the other one is remaindered. You know, is strangled in the cradle. Right. Uh, uh, you, you just you just gotta. So what you got to do is take the uh, ease of use of link to SQL and find out how you can harvest that and bring it in any framework. And tell everybody it's ninety nine for Link to SQL. Wow, it, well, it's just interesting to see what's event, how the, if that's actually going to happen. Because of course, the moment that post came out, I can't remember where I saw it. There was just an outcry. Apparently, there's a bunch of Link to SQL fans who were saying, "What are you doing?" Yeah, and and they've got a point. They were they were told that was the tech. You know, they were told that was the technology. Although, really, if they had looked closely, they could have. I mean, the tea leaves were there. Yeah. Well, there was naturally some skepticism because Microsoft had tried to do this before several times. You mean the object space? Yeah, yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. And, and Link to SQL made sure that they got something in the space out the door. Well, and, and remember, when we first talked about Entity Framework, there was discussion about it being in Studio 2008, and then it got pulled. And that ultimately people- shipped with SP1. But at the moment it got pulled, I thought, oh, no, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and, and for those of us who had been working with it for and working with the team for a long time, for those of us who have been working with it, working with the team, the Entity Framework team for a long time, um, you know, we did not see that as a possibility. Uh, we already knew at the point that they held it back that it was solid, that it was, um, 
uh, that that they were uh, building, uh, make, making it the basis for the things that they were going to do in the future. So if you were anywhere right. close to the inside track, you knew that was where the bet was. Yeah. Well, and it's an interesting point that the, the best way to make sure a Microsoft product survives is to make sure other parts of Microsoft are using it. Really a great point. Yep. And, and you could, I think you could, even then, you could start to see that that was, that was true. They just had too much momentum behind it. Well, people really genuinely want this entity concept to work. And, and, and it does. It, it does work. It's going to work. They can, they can smooth out over the, the, rough, uh, the rough edges over time, and they will. So, um, Ward, you were involved in the, in the development of PRISM, Microsoft PRISM? Yeah, and I think, I think they did a great job with V1, and I think they're doing a great job with the version 2. It, you know, it, uh, I think you've had some people on the show on this, and so, uh, you know, it, it's an outgrowth of, of the uh, CAB, Composite Application, uh, UI, I, I can never remember what that stands for. Yeah, Composite um, Application Block, I think. Composite Application, UI Application Block, but they dropped the UI from it. Right. Um, anyway, it, it, it's sort of a lessons learned, and uh, they brought in people... Uh, from the outside who had experience with it or experience in the space. Uh, so uh, they really knew what to go after, how to make it simple. They made it possible for you to, to um, pick and choose the pieces that you need and be able to understand them and uh, use all or as little of it as you need. And uh, so it, it's a great thing. I don't think I would program in WPF without it. Um, because I think it real it, it's even more important in WPF than 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 anything was with uh, WinForms. Um, uh, and, and let me give you the the insight into why I think that. Um, whenever you build a WPF screen, uh, it's just massive XAML, right? Yeah. Who likes rolling around in there? Who wants to debug that thing? <laughs> yeah. Well put. It, 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 crazy. And people were doing in WPF what they used to do in WinForms. Remember those big monolithic uh, WinForms oh, yeah. pages? Where they'd have like tabs and tabs and, and it would be all sitting there in one file? VB1 disease. Exactly. <laughs> well, it, people want to do that in WPF. You can probably get away with it for a while in WinForms. You will not get away from, with that at all in WPF. Yeah. You'll just, you'll just get lost. So what, what WPF really needed really needs is a is a UI composition story. And I think Prism is there to help make that um, really feasible. Now I can break those um, break that XAML down into reasonable chunks that I could I could possibly understand. And I can much more easily pull out any code in the code behind and put it over in some other class, a presentation model or a presenter or something that I can um, uh, test so just on UI co- uh, composition alone, Prism's a great move. And they needed to do the same thing for Silverlight, which is what they're doing with Prism V2. One of the really cool things, I think, in Prism V2 is what they've done with modularity. Um, they've, they've, they've made it so that you can do an asynchronous download of parts of your application. That means that I don't have to have all of my code for my Silverlight application down in the client all at once. Think about that. Yeah, that's nice. It's really cool, and it's really easy, and it works really well. Really speed things up. 
Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing from the folks like the Billy Hollis's of the world that are starting to be successful with WPF is that they're narrowing the implementation as much as possible, just the bits we really need. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I think people are starting to learn their lesson about these giant, uh, deeply entangled uh, frameworks, and they're learning to break it out into, into smaller, simpler pieces. You know, you can actually read the prism code. Uh, you can actually sit down and read it, and you will not be wading through, um, you know, a 20-page printout like you would if you looked at the CAD's work item. So I'm impressed. That's cool. I think it's something that everybody who's looking at Silverlight or WPF and wants to build a reasonable-sized LLB app should take seriously. It has possibilities. No two ways about it. It's going to be interesting to see where this goes. I'm, I, I mean, I'm still frustrated with Silverlight in the sense that it, living in the browser doesn't automatically make it the best deployment for everything. But it, the capabilities can't be touched. It's really smart client in a browser. That's right, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in this smart client game for a long time, and we've had the hardest time because there are so many places we'd like to go, but the rule is you can't install anything here. You've got a, right. lock, a lockdown desktop, and, and you're not going anywhere in that environment. You're not selling into that environment. Yeah, well, and it's the thing. It's, it, these, these, once again, we're using the browser. We're using Port 80 as the circumvention of... Uh, Lockdown rules, just Got ways it. to bypass things. But it works. Mm-hmm. I mean, Silverlight and Silverlight is great that way. At last, I can program in .NET, you know, and not in some other language like JavaScript or HTML or whatever. Yeah, well, the funny thing for me is I've ever so often put my IT hat on here. The issue here was the lockdown. Yeah, you know, if we dealt with the lockdown properly in the first place, we wouldn't have to go through these hoops. It, it wouldn't be a major capability of Silverlight that we can bypass that sort of lockdown issue. And there's other advantages here. And without a doubt, the, the multi-platform story is a big deal. You know, the idea that we're really bringing .NET to the Mac is is very cool. Just wish we could get out of the browser. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I agree. But that's where it is. And, um, you know... the. the <laughs> You have to you have to deal with the people where they are. It's maybe it's a, a Rumsfeld thing where you, you you have to go with the army you have, not the army you'd like to have, or something. Right. <laughs> uh, but that's 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 where it is. And, and now the other thing that's uh, that there's a struggle for people in Silverlight is the is the data story. How do I get my data in and out of there? Yeah. And that it, is where we've decided we're really hanging our hat. So, so this uh, is DevForce we're talking about now. This is this is DevForce for Silverlight. Uh, it, you know, it has to be N-tier because Silverlight is by necessity uh, N-tier. You'll be able to um, develop uh, your, you know, your your data model in Entity Framework, which by that by that time will be something that will be much more accepted uh, by people. Uh, but then you get to expose that that you know you write one model and you've got one the same model on the server you got the same model in Silverlight. You don't have to jump through hoops to do it. It kind of just tumbles right out of the box. And you're up and running in Silverlight. You get you get the full client side link that I was talking about, and we start to deal with some of the performance issues that are necessarily there whenever you have a distributed client. I don't know if you guys, you know, I mean, when I look at applications, I see applications issuing the same query over and over and over again, 
And in most worlds, you're going back to the server over and over and over again to get the same employees or the same company or the same orders. Right. Um, and and there's a great opportunity for client-side um, uh, caching there so that you can cache not just the objects, but you can actually cache the queries. So I can see that I actually asked that question before, see that I issued that query before, and decide that I don't need to go back to the server. Now, i got to tell you, in Silverlight, this is particularly uh, uh, an issue because it's totally asynchronous there. It, and nobody's ever been in an async world before. Nobody has really ever programmed like this before. You may think you have if you were an ASP.NET right. developer, but actually, you know, when you wrote your code on the server side, you were able to say, you know, um, when I go order dot order details, you would, your code would wait. Yep. Until it came back. Now, ASP.NET is synchronous. It's just fast. You're doing such small bytes because you're only doing a page render that you don't deal with that asynchronicity. Mm-hmm. Right. But in Silverlight, you know, normally if you're going out there and you're doing a lazy load and you go order dot order details, if you don't have the order details, you are going to, it's going to return nothing, an empty list. You're not even going to know unless you look that um, the reason that you've got an empty list of order details is because just fired off a lazy asynchronous query and it hasn't come back with the order details yet. Big yeah, problem. That is a problem, without a doubt. Uh, so what we allow you to do, and it seems, you know, I've been doing some of this uh, now, and one of the things you can do is um, you can eagerly fetch a whole bunch of uh, uh, data for your session, and uh, then you can essentially go say, I've got now I've got my in-memory database of just the things I need for this session. And I can just fire link queries against that. I don't have to go back to the database. I get, I get, an, a, I get a synchronous development experience. Again. Well, Ward, we're just about out of time here. So uh, you got any last-minute things you want to say? Shout-outs? Hi, Mom. Anything at all? Well, I do, actually. Um, you know, there, there's going to be a lot more interest in Entity Framework. And Julia Lerman's book, a very large book, uh, is coming out to help you understand what NA Framework's about and how to how to use it, and uh, I I really think that's going to be a, a, a book that should be on everybody's shelf. Excellent, Ward Bell. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here, guys. It's been a great uh, hour, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.